I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gas is too expensive. It really, 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 really is. But the other part of it is I don't understand the increase. For me... Pertaining to the gas prices, I'm about to get a Tesla. I might as well just get one and just go fully electric. Even like with my father, I used to be in the car with him a lot. It was never $5 a gallon. Because he, he will always tell me, because you know him, he likes to save money and stuff. He's like, oh, try to always go to the cheapest gas station. I personally, I don't even want to move this car if I don't have to. You know, long distance trips and in the summertime when you can be free to do that and get on the road and let the wind blow in your hair and all that kind of, no, you don't want to do it. You're in the car, you don't know should you burn the air conditioner or not burn the air conditioner because gas prices. Today on VNR, we're talking about gas prices. Not just how they got so high, but also why in the United States, we have been conditioned to pay special attention to oil prices and what it might take to finally break free from that cycle. At a downtown Ohio, Bill, where as you can see the price of unleaded tonight is 73.9. That's high enough for any of us who can remember when premium was 27.9. It was just last week when President Bush seemed so shocked at a news conference when someone mentioned $4 a gallon gas prices. At the museum in Washington, President Obama was asked about what can be done about high gas prices. Yeah, guys, in the words of Fat Joe, yesterday's price is not today's price. The pain at the pump is getting more severe, and it could get a lot worse before it gets any better. I mean, there have been efforts to break free of this cycle over and over again. I'm Ariel Zimros. And I'm Aaron Gordon, senior writer for Motherboard. And this is Vice News Reports. Aaron, you've written extensively about the intersection of technology and transit, and most recently you wrote this piece that is literally called Our Obsession with Gas Prices is Driving America Nuts, which kind of outlines how our relationship with gas prices reveals a lot about us as a country. It's one of those indicators that you're like, this is how the pulse of Americans is doing, like, right? Like, it, it kind of like tells you about the mood of the country in some ways, which I think is kind of screwed up. It's very screwed up. Yeah. I mean, and, it, you know, just think about how often most Americans probably see gas prices on a daily basis. You know, when you're driving down the main street in your town or you're driving on the highway, mm-hmm. it's just it's an omnipresent number that you can always look at. Yeah. And I mean, it isn't just gas prices, right? Like everything is actually more expensive right now. Rent prices are up, for instance. Even cooking at home is more expensive because groceries are so expensive. And that's all partially because of inflation. So could you explain the relationship between gas prices and inflation? 
gas prices and inflation obviously are not exactly the same thing, right? Gas prices can go up and they do go up or down all the time. And inflation is a separate metric. But right now we're seeing them act pretty much in tandem. Gas prices can go up. And in theory, it doesn't have to mean that the economy starts tanking afterwards. There's no kind of fundamental link between gas prices and the economy, except for the fact that when millions of Americans see gas prices go up, will cut back their spending far more than they're actually spending on more gasoline. So like, for example, you know, to use some random numbers, if Americans are spending $10 more filling up their gas tanks when gas prices go up, they will stop spending or, you know, curtail spending elsewhere by several more times than that $10, by $30, $40, $50, because they just feel like they're spending so much more on gas than they actually are and that it signals the economy is going badly and so they need to save money. So it has this kind of like reverse multiplier effect that does impact the economy for sure. But I also remember that politicians have spoken pretty openly about how, you know, conflict affects gas prices, right? The war in Ukraine is supposedly a factor right now. How much of a role does a war like what's going on in Ukraine actually play in dictating prices? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, these things matter. Russia obviously produces a lot of oil and natural gas. So even though the U.S. barely uses Russian oil, a lot of other countries do. And oil bought for use in the U.S. is part of the same global oil market every other country buys oil from. So oil companies try to estimate if they'll need to produce more or less than they're currently producing to respond to global demand. And so far, their response has mostly been to wait and see what happens. So what that means for the U.S. is that even though we have plenty of oil, the global market has experienced a really big shift that makes the overall oil and gas industry a lot more uncertain. And that's translated to higher prices for everyone. Okay, so people are getting really frustrated with these high gas prices, right? And one of the things that we know is that high gas prices can affect how people vote, which in this case is kind of a big deal because we're talking about the upcoming midterms. So what can the government actually do about this? So the government does have a pot of oil that it saves for emergencies. It's called the Strategic Oil Reserve, uh, and it basically means they put a bunch of oil in a stockpile somewhere. It's like a 25-day supply, more or less. That's even assuming you could release it all at once, which is actually logistically really difficult. But the government can release some of the reserves over time, you know, sell some off in a couple million barrels here or there. But the problem is that's a relatively small amount of oil. It really doesn't register on the global oil market. It just would be a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in the bucket of what accounts for the global oil market every single day. And pretty much the only other lever the government can pull, both the federal and the state level, is a gas tax holiday. They basically say we're not going to charge any sales tax on gasoline for, you know, six months, a year, whatever. And that sounds good. But state gas taxes are, you know, it depends on the state, but they're like usually between 10 and 30 cents per gallon. And gas prices have gone up by several dollars. That's basically it. I mean, those are the options on the table, at least in the short term, that politicians can do and neither of them work. This is one of the great paradoxes of kind of the situation that the Biden administration finds itself in and any administration that happens to be in office at the time of rising gas prices finds itself in. 
So it seems like everyone is struggling to manage this uncertain market. And what I've gathered from you is that this overwhelming stress and frustration is because of our dependency on oil. So how do we get here? In reference books for investors, there are abundant and impressive statistics on Standard Oil as a corporate unit. The rise of the U.S. as a global economic power really coincides with the discovery and commodification of oil, right? And it wasn't long afterwards that the gasoline-powered car becomes one of the hottest consumer items in the country, right, through Henry Ford's Model T. He kept working away at the idea, and by 1908, he had it licked. It was called the Model T. But most people still got to work by walking or by taking public transportation. It wasn't until after World War II that we started to really design our lives around the private automobile. And this happened through the mechanism of the GI Bill, essentially, and the government's decision to give returning servicemen and their families incredibly cheap government-backed home loans in suburban areas, new developments, you know, only white people had access to because of federal, like actual federal regulations saying that only white neighborhoods could have access to these loans. This happened at the time when America basically had no economic competitors, right? Because post-World War II, pretty much every other country that had been major economic powers essentially got bombed to smithereens, right? And they were rebuilding. We were the only ones who were not significantly destroyed by the war. And then that really started to change in the late 60s and early 1970s. The first oil crisis and the first time Americans really started to think about gas prices was in 1973, result of the Yom Kippur War um, in the Middle East. Israel's border troops, below strength during the holiday, came under surprise attack by Syrian and Egyptian forces 10 times greater than their own. The This new uh, cartel of oil-producing nations, OPEC, decided to band together, set the price of oil, and really upset this geopolitical balance that favored Western nations with cheap, abundant gasoline to date. It was the first time Americans really had to think about gasoline as anything other than just an incredibly cheap, constantly available resource. Right. All of a sudden, this is something that can go away, something that we might not always have perfect access to. Yes. Right. Like they, they realize this is finite and that we can get cut off. And not only that, but we had become so dependent on it. You know, if a huge oil price shock happened in, say, 1926, it wouldn't have affected American life in the same way. So two things needed to happen in order to get us here is what you're saying, right? The first is, one, we need to become super dependent on cars. That becomes quite easy for us at a certain point. And two, we have to suddenly get hurt. We have to suddenly realize that, hey, we might actually get cut off. That's where the anxiety comes from? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. After 1973, we have like this kind of reaction where the Nixon administration puts in oil price controls, told people to uh, not put up Christmas lights one year because of the electricity they use. And electricity mostly comes from fossil fuels. As a result, we face the possibility of temporary fuel shortages and some increases in fuel prices in America. This is a serious challenge. 
but we have the ability to meet it. There was another big oil crisis in 1979. This is unreal. Isn't this disgusting? Why doesn't anybody contact the president? Why is he letting this happen to us? Kasano officials say those long gasoline lines will probably be with us for the rest of the summer, and the price at the pumps will keep on getting higher. The same thing keeps happening over and over since then to different degrees for different reasons. But, you know, we've all lived through it multiple times now. And we've tried a few things to try and break free from this cycle. And so far, none of them have really worked. Do you have an example of that? There was one from 2005 where just a little after the invasion of Iraq, there was a lot of, frankly, anxiety over this stuff. And so a group formed and they called themselves Set America Free. The group ranges from dyed-in-the-wool environmentalists to a former head of the CIA, from Republican and Democratic lawmakers to leaders of the evangelical movement. How in the world did you people find each other? The idea was we had become too dependent on foreign oil and they wanted to end our dependence on them. They mostly focused on the idea that cars should be a lot more efficient in their use of gasoline and to use other fuel sources for them, perhaps ethanol-based gasoline, which they floated some really crazy numbers about the fuel efficiency that this could provide. In the end, it was just another one of the many efforts to shift America off of oil and gas dependency It didn't work because gas prices went down soon after that, and people went back to not caring about the efficiency of their cars when they bought new ones, and generally it faded as a political issue, and so the cycle began anew again. Does it have to be this way? No, of course it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, there have been been efforts to break free of this cycle Over and over again, you know, every single time we have these debates, someone stands up and says, it is time to end our dependence on foreign oil. It is time to break away from our over-reliance on gasoline. And some of them have been more promising than others. None of them have obviously worked very well. But I think there's reason to believe that this time may actually be different. That's after the break. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Okay, so before the break, you mentioned that we're in a new cycle and things might actually be different now. 
How exactly? We are subject to this incredibly volatile market good. And, you know, most people cannot imagine living their lives right now without their car powered by gasoline. The challenge has always been, of course, figuring out what that reality actually looks like. And that's why I think now might actually be different uh, because the shiny new solution is something that actually most people agree is happening and is a seismic shift to American way of life. And that's the oncoming of electric vehicles. Right. A lot of people are buying electric vehicles right now, which has been sort of this hump that we've needed to get over. And I think it's a good option to break free of the tyranny of gas prices. It's not a perfect solution, but it's definitely better than buying another gas guzzler. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at the gasoline price graph, it looks like the EKG of someone having a heart attack. It's all over the place. It's up, it's down, you know, it goes in huge increases, then little decreases, then big decreases, then huge increases, right? And the electricity price graph looks like the EKG of a nice, normal, healthy patient. It's a very regular pattern swooshing gradually up and down with the seasons in a very predictable way. And it's just so easy looking at these graphs to say, okay, so I'm buying a car. I'm going to be relying on whatever energy source, you know, this car is powered by for the next decade or so. Which one do I want to be tying my economic future to? The heart attack or the healthy patient? And, you know, EV ranges are getting better, right? The technology is getting better. I think that for some people, the environmental argument is is also something that they might care about. Um, that said, you know, of course, electric vehicles get their battery charged from somewhere. And sometimes that means the electricity actually does come from coal, which is also bad for the environment. But overall, we're still talking about fewer emissions and, and potentially green energy, Right. Electric vehicles, in almost every case, is better for the environment than whatever you were driving before. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for the environment, right? Because electric vehicles, they use a ton of electricity. It's a huge increase, much bigger than any other appliance you own. Um, But, you know, it's still much more efficient than a gas car, just as uh, on a mechanical level. And you can charge it at night when there's less uh, stress on the grid And the energy generally comes from cleaner sources. So it's a complicated picture, better, but not good. Overall, there are a lot of positives to buying an electric vehicle. But I know that there are still some pretty major challenges to getting Americans to actually make that switch, right? Oh, yeah, there are tons of challenges. And I mean, it's going to be a relatively slow transition. So the one thing that always gets mentioned first and foremost is cost. Electric vehicles cost a lot of money right now. Materials are expensive and they're only getting more expensive. It's not clear when or how soon electric vehicles will be affordable for people who can't you know, spend $40,000 on a car. I think the biggest challenge is just going to be the practicality of giving people affordable and reliable access to charging the cars, especially if they don't own their own homes. This has a huge impact on the equity of how these EVs are distributed amongst the population. So, Aaron, is it just sort of convenient to be looking to electric as an answer right now? I will say that I think one of the things that's a little bit different now than previous you know, efforts to wean ourselves off oil and gas during huge price shocks is a lot of people are just going out there and be like, I want to buy an electric vehicle. I don't want to put up with this anymore. 
if and when gas prices go down, um, which they will go down at some point by some amount, you know, whether they ever go back to $2 a gallon, I don't know, but they will go down at some point. And I think we will see interest in electric vehicles diminish a little bit at that point. People will go back to wanting their trusty gas cars for the same reasons that they have for the last, you know, 100 years. And I think it's important to kind of learn from history in this respect. So it kind of seems like we're just on this roller coaster and and we keep getting tugged in one direction and then tugged all the way back, right? Like, how do we get off the roller coaster? Like, what are we supposed to do? You know, I think people do the thing that is best for their wallets most of the time. They're going to save money buying an electric car now rather than a gas car. And so I think we have to both celebrate the fact that people are making that kind of decision, but also expand the lens in which we look at the costs that a car-centric society has. And it's extremely expensive for everybody to live our lives in a way that's centered around the car because those costs are relatively fixed. You're not going to pay much less on the insurance of your car if you make a little money than if you make a lot of money. The cost of a car now is more expensive than ever. So I think the ultimate goal we have to be striving for, not just for an environmental reasons, but also make living in America less an expensive endeavor is to uh, help people drive less, help people get around without needing their cars, help people have choices in how they move around their, their neighborhoods and their cities. And so I guess the question that I have for you is, What can Americans do right now to sort of ease their fear and anxiety that then does actually have real world impacts on gas prices? The answer to that question is basically to do your own little mini accounting of how to rely less on your car or energy costs for, you know, your way of life. I don't mean to trivialize, you know, that a lot of people can't do this to a huge degree, Um, but as much as you can, you know, look at your life, where you drive, how far the things you drive to are, how safe it might be to bike, you know, to those places instead. And, you know, I think I don't want to overstate the effect that, you know, all these individual things we can do will have here. Like fundamentally, this is a problem that needs to be solved by our elected representatives and by our government generally to create an environment that it essentially undid, you know, over the last 80 years. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. You brought so much context to this question of anxiety and gas prices. Really, thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode was produced by Adriana Tapia and edited by Stephanie Kariuki. Vice News Reports is produced by Sophie Kazis, Jen Kinney, and Adriana Tapia. Our senior producer is Sam Greenspan. 
Our supervising producers are Ashley Cleek and Stephanie Kariuki. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Pran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Mixing by Evan Sutton. Our executive producer is Adiza Egan. And the VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I'm Ariel Zimros. If you have some time this week, it'd be so great if you could go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and take the time to rate and review our podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week. Mm-hmm.